Hello and welcome to our final episode in the first series of Material Matters, hosted by me, Grant Gibson. And this one is ever so slightly different. Whereas in previous podcasts, we've been meeting a maker, designer, artist or architect who is linked to a material or technique. Today, we're meeting someone who is renowned for discussing and sometimes critiquing the stuff that surrounds us. Glenn Adamson is a curator, critic and author, a former director of the Museum of Arts and Design in New York. He is currently a senior scholar at the Yale Centre for British Art. He's undoubtedly one of the leading voices in contemporary craft, with books including The Craft Reader, Thinking Through Craft, The Invention of Craft and Art in the Making, which he wrote with Julia Brown Wilson. His latest book, which is the focus of this interview, is entitled Fewer Better Things. Published by Bloomsbury late last year, it unpicks our increasingly tenuous relationship with the material world in a digital age. Glenn, thanks so much for doing this. Great to be here with you, Grant. Well, we have half an hour. I mean, you're flying tomorrow back to New York, right? I am. You're catching me en route. Right. Okay. Well, good. Let's crack on in that case and talk about uh, the new book that you've written. Um, It feels quite different to me tonally to your previous work. Uh, So I guess the first question, is it aimed at a different reader? Yes, you're right about that. I was, of course, very involved in writing academically, and you might even say theoretically about craft for many years, and in fact was lucky enough to come along at a time that a whole field was emerging. So a specialism, you could say, in craft studies that I was a part of. And I suppose I now felt confident enough to write a book for a general reader. So I kept thinking, you know, what would my mom want to know about craft? What would my mom want to know about materiality? And that was really what I had in mind the whole time that I wrote the book. Because there is a kind of new market for this kind of book opening up, isn't there? I mean, people like Rob Penn, you, there's a quote by Alexander Langlands on the, the back sleeve. There's this kind of personal craft story publishing market emerging, is there? Yeah, I think of it as a post-Richard Sennett thing. Mm. You know, once he published The Craftsman, uh, I guess an intellectual historian of that caliber creating space in the market was a really transformative moment and there have been lots of titles really uh, in the field since then. I guess mine is different in the sense that I'm trying to situate craft not so much in a context of traditional, um, you know, fidelity to skills, but really see craft as part of a broader picture, you could say. Mm. Mm. I mean, it focuses on material intelligence. Can we unpick what that is? Yeah, so that is the broader picture, in fact. What I'm trying to get across here is that People in many different walks of life have this property of material intelligence, or you could call it a human faculty. And it's something that actually almost everybody used to have in great depth and that we probably have less and less these days uh, because of the influence of technology, Mm. the distancing effects of globalism and industry. And the, the key thing, I suppose, is that it's a kind of communal or connective tissue for society. So whether you're a craft maker or an engineer or a scientist or just somebody that can appreciate how things are made when you walk down the street or sit in a chair and have, well, really just be alive to those things, you have what I would call material intelligence. So it seems to me, picking up on the digital thing, um, is that something you're wary of? Oh, I guess wary would be the word, yeah. I think it's certainly not right to be a refusenik about digital things, some kind of 21st century Luddite. And in fact, I used the internet extensively to research and write the book. So I would be a real hypocrite to come out against those kinds of tools. But on the other hand, you have to say that digital tools are extremely distracting. And, you know, everybody has this image in their mind of 
a married couple each checking Twitter as they're laying next to each other on the pillow, right? But it's not just that. It's everything in mm. our lives is being processed and mediated through a screen. And that feels very powerful. And it even might feel like omniscience sometimes. But of course, what you're not getting is the incredible richness around your body because your brain is always somewhere else. Your eyes are always somewhere mm. else. Mm. There's a story I tell in the book where I had gone to Yellowstone and I saw the old faithful geyser. It's a really interesting situation because it's very much like a spectator sport or a theatrical performance, but you don't know when it's going to go off. So everybody's sort of waiting there and they're chatting with one another very amiably, you know, like in a town square. Mm. But then the minute the water gushes out of the ground, everybody takes their phone out and takes a video or a photograph, even though they could get an identical image or video online. They want it to be their mm. version instead of just standing there and looking at it and continuing to talk to the people next to them. So that's the kind of mediation that I'm that I'm more, mostly concerned about in the book. You seem very dismissive of, of the word smart. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, there's nothing wrong with the idea that our phones have a lot of intelligence packed into them. But if you draw the conclusion from all this so-called smart technology, phones, cars, refrigerators, toasters, whatever... If you infer from that that traditional objects that are not digitally activated are dumb, then obviously you're making a great error because think about how many centuries, indeed millennia, of intelligence is packed in any, into any ceramic object that you might have. And it, it's really having a respect for those kinds of analog intelligence that I think um, I'm trying to get across in the book. Yeah, I mean, talking about that kind of analog intelligence, in one of the opening chapters of the book, you write, and I'm, I'm going to quote at a little bit of length, um, as a culture, we're in danger of falling out of touch, not only with objects, but with the intelligence they embody, the empathy that is bound up in tangible things. I mean, within that context, what does empathy mean? Yes, this is one reason why I call material intelligence a connective tissue, because if you don't have a sense of how an object was made, then it's very unlikely that you'll have a sense of what it was like to make it, and therefore you'll have a very poor sense of what the person's life was like that brought that object into the world. So somebody's manufacturing an object for you like your smartphone, half a world away, you don't know their name, you don't really know what goes into the phone, you have no sense of the implications of the object that's in your possession and what that really means for the way that you're situated in the world. So for me, there's a kind of ethical charge to material intelligence. It's not just this geeky thing about knowing how stuff is produced. When you, when you talk about the implications... Can we unpick that a little bit? What does that mean? Yeah, so if you have a sense of what materials are in your phone and how it might have actually been created, then it might give you some insight as to what the environmental footprint of mm. that phone might be and also what sorts of social structures you're actually supporting by buying that phone. And of course, then you can make your decision it's mm. worth it or not. But I might make a comparison to eating. So we're now very, very aware that eating is an ethical act and some people have chosen to be vegan or vegetarian some people just worry about how much fish they're eating and how the fish was farmed we're caught. talking about quite a small portion of the population though, aren't we because actually you know there's a lot of fried chicken being eaten on the high street and chicken bones being left everywhere for sure so it's quite this this is quite a middle class dilemma isn't it i suppose that's probably right but on the other hand you have to say that most of the consumption that's being done in the world is being done by the middle class either in Europe or in America or in rising middle class in China. And actually, the people that are still living in what I would call a state of high material intelligence, embeddedness in 
agriculture or local manufacturers, they actually consume relatively little compared to those of us who are supposedly in this small bandwidth. So I would say we we have a particularly high level of responsibility to inform ourselves about these things. Mm. Mm. I mean, it's a very personal book, Glenn. It's certainly much more personal than, than anything else I've, I've read of yours. Um, and the first person we meet is your grandfather, Arthur, uh, who grew up on a farm in Kansas and became, I mean, really, did he become a rocket scientist? Yes, he, he really actually did. had a T-shirt that said, <laughs> why actually, yes, I am a rocket scientist. <laughs> so he he's a, was a great figure in my life. And his story is really an amazing American story. He was raised actually quite poor on a Dust Bowl farm in Kansas. And, you know, it was a situation where they were doing everything for themselves. Practically, there was no electricity, no phone most of the years he was growing up. So he could mend a fence, he could fix a tractor, he could make ice cream, he could, you know, build small-scale architecture, um, could do anything that needed doing around the farm. And then he took that skill set with him to a university in California learned engineering, and then ultimately became an aircraft engine designer. Yeah. It's interesting. My grandfather was a, um, a builder. He built a house that, that my mum grew up in. And I'm left, and I, I'm really very impractical, and I'm left with this residual guilt that I can't do the things that he could do. I mean, are you a practical person? No, I feel a bit like that as well. I don't think I'm impractical, but it's certainly not a strong suit of mine. And in fact... Now that you've asked the question, I think one of the animating motivations for me in the book was to do some kind of justice to this skill set that I respect. And that comes very early for me, um, again, through my grandfather. So in addition to having this career as an engineer, he also had a hobby of being a wood carver. And in fact, he had a business card that he would hand out to friends that said Arthur P. Adamson wood carvings and jet engines made to order. <laughs> and I used to be able to go and watch him carve. You know, and he would explain to me all the different timbers, why they smelled that way, why the color was like that, how they would change when they dried, how one would take a chisel differently from another. And that already gave me this real uh, appreciation for, I suppose, watching craft or appreciating it at a, at a short distance. So that kind of ignited your interest in craft and skill. But there was, I mean, from the book, there's an epiphany at university that particularly led you down the route that you've gone. Yeah. So I think I was ready for it because of that experience and others I'd had growing up. But when I was in college, I had this amazing opportunity to go into the storage room of a museum and handle ancient Chinese ceramics. And I remember the specific pot that um, really kind of flipped the switch for me was a Tang Dynasty, so-called three-color ware dish. And my memory of it is that there were visible imprints of the fingers of the potter on the underside of the dish. I mean, more than visible, you could put your fingers in them and feel that kind of contact with this person who had lived over a millennium ago. And, you know, compared to looking at slides in the dark, which is what I've been doing when studying paintings, there was just no contest there. So I initially set out to be a specialist in ceramics and then gradually kind of broadened that interest into my writing on craft and interest in design history and other related topics. Quite an unusual decision to take. I mean, there, there probably weren't that many people doing covering the same ground, I'm guessing, at that time. That's right. That's right. When I was starting out, it seemed like kind of a bad career move to be thinking about craft. And, you know, now it seems almost like um, prescience, but it was really just luck. You know, I, I fell into it because of this attraction to an object and other many other objects. Um, and in a lot of ways, I often think that my career as a theorist and a historian 
has really been more like a matter of trying to live up to that initial charge, that electric connection that I had with those things, um, which I don't, don't think makes it a dishonest thing to be trying to intellectualize it. But I also felt like I should write a book that was much more directly about that sense of uh, the connection that you can have with things. Because you write about uh, craft, and I quote, being bound up in an inferiority complex. Um, how did that happen? And is there some love that you have for an underdog in that case? Mm. Yeah, I think it's more than love. I think it's more like a sense of social justice, frankly, which sounds a bit grand. But I wrote a book called The Invention of Craft, Mm. which was really about this question you've just asked. How did we get into the current state of affairs where craft is seen as the underdog, as marginal, as backward-looking or traditional, small-scale, inefficient, all the things that are said against it? And it gradually dawned on me that that had to come about sometime and somewhere. And so I located that story in uh, really in England at the time of the Industrial Revolution. And the thought that I had was that at the same time that industry was invented by these capitalists, craft was invented as its necessary opposite. And of course, it was often located either in the home, in women's work, or in what the working class did, you know, the, the actual laborers who needed to be led around and managed by the capitalists, or more and more often it was located elsewhere in the empire. So it was in India, or it was in Africa. Um, And when you think about it that way, you realize that the systematic deprioritization of craft, it's being relegated into a secondary status, is actually a way of relegating people to a secondary status. And that's really the power dynamic that's at work. So there's more at stake here in Um, you know, in respecting material intelligence, there's more at stake than simply being able to appreciate the chair you're sitting in, although that's good. And there's even more at stake than understanding how that specific chair might have been manufactured and what that means. There's also a sense in which respect for material intelligence is respect for people that customarily are disrespected in our culture. And that's a very important project. Mm. It's interesting because I think I'm right in saying that in that book also you suggest, or you show, you illustrate how craft was actually a vital part of the Industrial Revolution as well. And this is the great irony that craft, as I always like to remind people, means power. That's where the word comes from. You know, it's still in German. Craft with a K means power. And the reason that craft needed to be relegated to that secondary status in the first place was so that it could be controlled. And part of that story is that the Industrial Revolution itself was incredibly dependent on the skills of highly adept highly trained um, artisans who were machine builders mm. or repair people or... So to make the tools that, that the Industrial Revolution yeah. was fueled by fundamentally. And also pattern makers. You know, if you want to make a machine tool or a train, you need very highly skilled wood carvers to cut the patterns for you. How often do we hear about them? Never. But then in some ways, they are the people that actually made the Industrial Revolution happen. So it's telling those kinds of stories. And again, it's a great example of material intelligence at work if you look at an object and you realize that somewhere back in its story, there's a skilled hand, pair of hands, that tells you a lot more than, um, than might be evident to you if you don't have that kind of acuity and ability to read the objects around you. I often say, if you have material intelligence, you walk around the world and 
see it clearly in the same way that somebody reads a page of a book when they can read the language that book is written in. So where is craft now? I mean, it's quite fashionable, isn't it? It's part of hipster culture. Mm. Is this a good thing? I think it probably is a good thing. Um, there's always these questions, you know, when things go mainstream, it's like punk. You know, when punk music went mainstream, was that the big sellout or was it actually a very useful transformation of mass culture that made it more liberatory and more permissive? And I am kind of an optimistic person, so I tend to think that these moments where resistant or marginalized points of view do get sucked into the vortex of the mainstream, that that's actually how positive change happens. So I do give people like Richard Sennett a lot of credit for, you know, taking what seemed like a very unfashionable topic, lending their authority to it, lending their thinking to it, and um, being part of that that process of recuperation and attention building. Do you think Matthew Crawford was part of that? Yeah, although I don't have quite as positive feelings about Matthew Crawford mm. because he's guilty of a certain kind of stereotyping, a self-stereotyping really, uh, which I don't agree with and I think it's ultimately quite unhelpful. So I think, you know... How is he stereotyping? So his deal, for people who haven't read the book, is that he's a mechanic, so he repairs motorcycles, and he had had a white-collar career previously sitting in a desk, and basically he says there's no way to have a good life if you're you know, stuck at a computer screen all day and everybody needs to get out there and do things like I'm doing. But of course, you know, he wouldn't have a job repairing motorcycles if there weren't executives at places like Harley-Davidson getting them manufactured and sold. So it's an obviously hypocritical and contradictory position he's taking. And really what you want to do is understand the role of craft and engineering and other kinds of material intelligence as being part of a broader range of intelligences, which should also be valued. So it's not a matter of holding up craft and saying, this is the one thing that's worthwhile and to hell with everything else. It's a matter of holding up craft and saying, this is part of this bigger picture and we should all value everyone's capabilities, hopefully as democratically and fairly as possible. I mean, coming back to your relationship with with craft, Glenn, leaving uh, Matthew aside for a moment. Uh, you wrote a piece for a magazine I used to edit where you essentially waved goodbye to the field a few years ago. Yet here we are talking about craft. You have a, a new book on the subject out. What happened? Yeah, this is the sort of thing <laughs> you'd never live down. You should never let me publish that, Grant. <laughs> so this was in Crafts Magazine and I wrote this essay called Goodbye Craft. And it was quite a specific thing, actually. I thought I was going to be doing an exhibition at the V&A about the concept of the future. And it wasn't a particularly craft-centered show. It was going to take me four years, and I thought, okay, I'm moving on. But then what happened was I got the directorship at the Museum of Arts and Design. And I remember I actually put on Facebook, the, the whole message was, hello, craft, with the link to my announcement that I was joining the museum. And although I only spent a little less than three years there in the directorship, it got me reoriented to the craft world again. And I guess I kind of decided there was enough to say about craft and enough um, joy to be had and being part of the community that I didn't want to leave again once I had come back. It sucked you back in. Yeah, yeah. It, well, I don't, it's the godfather or the prodigal son or something. <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, I think also that um, writing this book was, partly came out of a feeling that I had done enough academic work on craft and there wasn't probably much point writing yet another heavily footnoted heavily researched book 
in the subject area, but that there might actually be some usefulness to writing a book that is aimed at a broader readership. So although I obviously am still thinking about craft, there was a, a germ of something in that Goodbye Craft essay, which is that I wanted to step aside and let younger scholars start to have the voice. And I actually do still feel that way. I was going to say, do young, are younger scholars coming through, do you think? Oh my God, yes. It's incredibly. So who, who are you looking at particularly? Well, it's sort of in my own uh, generation, mm. I would name people like Namita Wiggers or Elisa Author, Jenny Sorkin, uh, Ezra Shales. Uh, obviously, there's Tanya Harrod, who was ahead mm. of me by a generation. Uh, Ned Cook, who trained me at Yale. And then you have younger people still, like Kat Rossi and Stephen Knott, who I helped train. And is it important that a discipline has that kind of bedrock of academia behind it? Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, you would expect me to say that. I would. <laughs> but I do, think it's, it, I do think it's true, you know, because thought leadership is a real thing. And if you don't have academics generating the ideas, we've mentioned Senate a couple of times mm. as a great example, um, then the ideas that do end up in circulation are the stereotypes and are the reductive ones and are the ones that will also be probably used for corporate interest and don't have any criticality in them and aren't ultimately probably going to be very empowering. What's the relationship between kind of the academic writing that you've done in the past and maybe the journalism that you also do? I think the academic writing for me is like a preparedness thing. So it it puts me in a state of hopefully well-founded confidence, but certainly makes me feel like I know what I'm looking at and can relate it to a broader context. And it also gives me a kind of motivation to care about something. I think if you're just responding to things on the way, on the basis of the way they look, for example, or whether they're cool or fashionable, then you're quite likely to be led around by the nose. Whereas if you have a very historically informed and in-depth account in your own mind as to why you would want to write about something in the first place, of course you're going to be able to write about it better, but also you're going to be able to make better choices about what you, what you in fact address in your writing. Does it matter if you're not a maker yourself? I mean, you mentioned David Pye in the book, who obviously was a, a, fine, a fine maker and a great writer and thinker. Um, is he able to bring something to the topic that maybe you or I, uh, who aren't makers, can't? It, well, it's certainly undoubtedly true that he did and there are many other examples of that like Alison Britton for example mm. the, the incredibly amazing ceramic artist is also an incredibly amazing writer um, I certainly think you can write well about craft without being a maker I always uh, practice the policy of checking so if I'm writing anything technical I always send it either to the person I'm writing about or if it's a review I'll run it past somebody else who knows um, so there's, it's just a matter of due diligence, really. And there's also this really fascinating thing of a kind of productive ignorance where you can watch somebody make something, ideally in person, ask them questions, try your hand at it a little bit just to get a sense of what the difficulty level is. And that's very useful conditioning for anything that you might write. In fact, I just taught a course at Yale with Ned Cook where we had students alternating between the classroom one week and then a workshop of some kind next week. So we carved wood with them, we did ceramics, we raised metal. And 
those um, sessions were very, very helpful for them in understanding the theoretical text that we were also reading. So it's a kind of back and forth. And obviously, it's not a matter of becoming a professional woodcarver or a potter. It's a matter of having some sense of what that material wants from you when you work it. One of the things we do learn in the book is that you play the pipes. Oh, yeah. Which leads me to ask what the relationship between craft and music is. It's something, it's a thread that's been coming up in a couple of the interviews we've done for this series, interestingly. So first of all, let's be specific. I play the Irish bagpipes. Irish bagpipes, okay. Ellen pipes. So not the Scottish kind that people might immediately imagine. So they're a lot quieter, which is the best thing about them, arguably. (laughs) Some might say the quieter, the better. But um, it's a complicated instrument. Uh, it's you know plays in two octaves. The only bagpipe that does that. It's quite a lot of gear uh, in it, and it's a, in fact a beautifully made bespoke craft object in its own right. There are no mass manufactured pipes, so there's that. Is that what you, what drew you to it in the first place? Oh, in part for sure, but also just the sound of it. It's a very haunting and beautiful instrument, and I had been playing um, simple Irish music on other instruments uh, before committing to it. So. Just to answer your question, you know, there's a comparison that I make in the book between traditional music, like folk music, you could say, and making, where it's entirely embodied. So although I can read music, I would only ever read music just to learn the basics of the tune. And then most of the rest of the learning is a matter of embellishment. And also you pick up variations by playing with other people. And that's very similar to how somebody learns in a workshop situation. It's not really something you learn from a book, although it might give you pointers or a basic skeleton. It's really something you have to learn with your body. And also you associate it to other people that you've worked or played with. Mm. I mean, changing tack for a moment, uh, because we don't have that long together. You have a, you have a plane to catch. Um, one of the other things that crops up in the book, one of the other themes that com- crops up recurrently is, is museums and the role of museums. Um, you've spent a certain degree of your life as a curator, obviously. Uh, and I'm wondering what the role of the curator is in the digital age. Mm, big question. I think it's changing massively. And the most important and obvious thing is that curators used to be repositories of information. And now the information, generally speaking, is out there somewhere. Not always, obviously, but it used to be that a curator was first and foremost a kind of sorting operation because you couldn't stick a word into a box and search it and get all the objects to come up for you. So the curator had to actually do that. And it meant that curators were prized principally for the information they carried around in their heads. And of course, that was true in lots of other walks of life as well. So like all those other professions, curating is being disrupted. And I think the general tendency has been for curators to become more like impresarios and show people. So again, the tendency has been for curators to think a lot more about space and how they shape space and how objects can almost be props within these spectacular settings. And of course, the uh, issue of personal connection is also um, paramount and you know you can talk a lot about the way that social media and other online platforms has raised the currency of networks and connections but that's certainly something you see in curatorial um, work as well and now, now people often say every curator is a development officer in other words a fundraiser so that's really where the curatorial job description is going it's towards spectacle and money I was going to say because impresario would tend to suggest denote entertainment. Is that part of what you do, Glenn? Absolutely. And if you don't take that seriously, then you're 
probably not going to be an effective curator. You know that term infotainment that people sometimes use? I think curating is almost the embodiment of that problematic term. So this is another area where material intelligence turns out to be really helpful because, again, it's a job description and you can do it well or poorly. I think it's not a good idea to say, oh, this is terrible and curating shouldn't be like this because you can say that, but that probably just means somebody else is going to get the job or end up curating the show. So what you have to say is, given that this is the state of affairs, how can I curate effectively? And so for me, it it is about having a passion and a knowledge for objects. It's also about finding ways to communicate that and get people to kind of graft themselves onto your level of care and concern for an object and use the precious opportunity that you have. And after all, the huge amount of capital that's been invested in a public institution that you're then allowed to care for and, and deploy um, to try to use that as responsibly as possible. So I was intrigued by your assertion that materiality rather than abstraction, I think you use used fine art, abstract art as an example, might encourage more people into galleries and museums. How? Yeah, so I have pretty good proof of this, I have to say, because I've looked at attendance figures of major craft shows and whether it's tapestries at the Metropolitan or the recent Annie Albert mm. show at the Tate Modern or the quilt show that we did at the V&A uh, when I was there. Um, those are all textile shows, but also ceramics. I just curated a ceramic show that went to the Fitzwilliam here in England, all very, very well attended. And it's actually not that surprising because people feel like there's not a lot of barriers to comprehension with these objects. They can relate to them very intuitively. You know, people start their lives with material intelligence. Kids have a lot of it, and we do retain it. And I think there's also increasingly a hunger to connect with that. So when a curator actually takes seriously the idea of connecting somebody to a physical artifact in all of its material richness, it's almost always effective. And the idea that the power in the art world in terms of public appeal is all on the side of, you know, video art or famous abstract painters, um, not denying the appeal of those things, but I, I certainly think that craft actually has an easier uh, job when it comes to connecting with the general public. But with one or two exceptions, craft-type work doesn't sell to anything like the extent that fine art does in, in auction houses, right? Well, that might be another reason why the general public feels like it's accessible to them. Right. Of course, you have to be careful here because the general public is very interested in how much things cost too. So if you have a record-breaking Picasso or Klimt, people will come to see it just because it's a record-breaking painting, an expensive painting. But I also think that when a museum with a lot of authority, like the Metropolitan or the Tate, lends that authority to an object that's similar to what people have in their own lives and says, okay, this is special in this way and we're going to tell you that story, it's very, very easy for people to become excited about that and I think that's great. Is it to do with language as well? That these ceramic objects don't tend to, although they can, wrap themselves up in a cloak of difficult, difficult words? Yeah, or the difficulty is maybe just a bit more of an everyday difficulty, you know? I mean... Most people probably are pretty alive to the fact that they couldn't make a ceramic very well unless they've been trained, and they would know that there's a lot of jargon that goes into that, you know, glaze chemistry and whatnot, kiln firing temperatures. But they kind of immediately think, well, 
fair enough, because if you didn't know all that stuff, you couldn't even make that thing. Whereas the overlay of jargon that lays on top of a contemporary artwork, which I personally actually have a lot of interest in, that can be quite alienating. You have to work very hard to get that to be relatable for people. So the book is called Fewer Better Things. Is there a sustainable angle to this? You, can't, you, can, you kind of bring it up, but you don't hammer the message home, it seems to me. Was that deliberate? I guess it was to some extent. I, I do think there's something in here that will help in a marginal way in our unfolding environmental crisis. Uh, and that's maybe a bit obvious, almost too obvious to belabor. But if you have a smaller number of things that you care more about and you also don't throw them away, then clearly you're going to have a smaller carbon footprint, which is that simple. Um, whether the kind of ethical stance and aesthetic stance that I'm advocating in the book would be anything like equal to deal with the impending climate change as most respectable scientists are predicting, um, I sincerely doubt. So I, I really don't want to overstate the claim that this is like the manual for a better environment. I think it would help, and anything that helps is helpful. But I also think that the claims that I'm making about social connectivity and having an ethic, uh, having a sound ethical relationship to your fellow human beings, that's really where I would see the greater promise of this way of thinking. Mm. I mean, one of the, the kind of overwhelming uh, elements of contemporary life is, is fashion. And the fashion comes up um, a little bit in the book. Um, what's the relationship between fashion and material intelligence? Do materials go in and out of fashion? Mm, they do. And of course, fashion in the sense of clothing mm. is one of our most obvious examples of material intelligence at work. And actually... It's also something that's killing the planet. I mean, we're talking about the sustainable angle. Right? Definitely. And there's been a lot of thinking about this recently. Um, there was a great show at the Museum of Modern Art, in fact, called it Is Fashion Modern? Which really placed a lot of emphasis on the uh, damage being created by the fashion industry. And it is a really good example, too, of um, an area where people do have a lot of sensitivity to the material reality. I mean, after all, it's on your body all day, every day, practically. Um, and so you have a lot of awareness of that, even if you don't have a lot of technical knowledge. And that's a really good example of an arena where you might be able to build on the sense that people already do have within themselves of what their clothes are and how they feel and what signals they send and try to build that into a broader sense of awareness. Um, but equally, as you say, fashion can be highly destructive. And if you're only thinking about its cheapness or its appearance and you're not grounded in that kind of material intelligence, then you're quite likely to have an absolutely... Um, immoral relationship to your own clothes which is, sounds like a strong way to say it but it's true I'm very aware I've got to let you go uh, so final question if there's one thing you'd like the reader to take away from your book what would that be hmm, that's a really good question I think what I really want people to take away from the book is a questioning frame of mind and a curiosity so next time they walk down the street Next time they buy a shirt, next time they buy a gift for somebody, um, just have them notice things, even notice things they don't know. That's obviously how you start. You know, how is that rug woven? How is that manhole cover cast? How is the asphalt laid on the street that I'm walking down now? That's the kind of 
state of mind that I'm hoping to put people in, because once you start wondering, you'll find the answers. Brilliant. Fewer Better Things, published by Bloomsbury, is available from all good bookshops now. Very good. Glenn Adamson, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Grant. It's been great. <laughs>